If you haven't noticed, something is different, <laughs> namely me standing here. Um, I was going to joke with you that we're going to do a uh, cantata uh, today. We're just going to sing through the service, since that's probably how you're most used to seeing me uh, up here. But uh, today, Pastor John has given me uh, the wonderful privilege to speak with you today. For those that don't know me, my name is John Kirkpatrick. My wife is Wendy. She's the children's director here, and uh, we love Capshaw, love being here. I tell you what, I was so thankful to get to be, sometimes when you're up here, you miss hearing you guys sing, and I tell you what, it was great to praise and worship our God together before we hear from his word, and, and I tell you, it's a joy that I, I just found myself realizing I had let pass by Sunday after Sunday. So thankful for that. Pastor John, again, so graciously given me the opportunity to speak a beautiful encounter of Christ. And here's the thing, I know pastors aren't jealous about certain sections of Scripture, but this is a good one. <laughs> so, you know, going into that, I want to speak to the humility of our senior pastor who leads so diligently and faithfully, and we're so thankful for. As I look around, there's not only that different. These guys over here decided to all wear the same clothes, which is a little weird, but uh, we'll go with it. And they look just to me to be a slight bit maybe tired. And so, so guys, I will endeavor but I know the Holy Spirit will endeavor more to, to hold your attention. But I'm so thankful what they were part of is D now, Discipleship Now, where our students were able to draw away from the things of their normal weekend. I guarantee you most of you did not have a normal weekend, especially if you were at my house, um, and, and had the opportunity to draw. I don't know at what point you cross over where staying up all night sounds like torture, but I've crossed that line. So, so I'm, I'm now on that side of, of the hill. But uh, these guys were, were endeavoring. I, we had the 7th and 8th grade boys, and, and I'll tell you, you guys weren't half as bad, well, maybe, as, the, as everybody said you would be. But it's nothing that, that paint and a little money cannot fix. And so, uh, no, in all seriousness, guys, thank you for, for letting your, your kids be a part. And I'm so thankful that we have young people rising up in this ministry. Not ministering in the future and one day, but ministering here and now. And you guys are so important and critical to the body of Christ here at Capshaw. The other thing I would say is I'm thankful to our youth pastors and our family. And what was amazing to see that you guys may have not had exposure to is to see that the young people were leading them. Our college students, our, our, our gifted student leaders were a part of that ministry. And so we pray that God would, would use the things that occurred this weekend to continue to grow his body. But as we all may be tired or fatigued or, or whatever else, I pray today that we focus in on this encounter that Jesus had with a woman. It's a simple story. It's a very isolated event. But volumes of history, of exposition, of poetry and song have been written. And they give us an opportunity today to travel a lot of different pathways. We could travel the pathway of the historical narrative. We could go to speaking on social justice and the treatment and how we treat other people here on this earth. We could talk about methods of evangelism, and I hope in some way we're going to touch on each one of those points. But I want you to know my desire this morning is those are not the purpose. I hope this morning that what we do is we take a minute to focus on the reason the Apostle John wrote these words for us. And while all those things are a part of it, he stated for us so clearly in John chapter 20, verse 31. Listen to this. The apostle himself write, but these things I write so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life in his name. 
So hear me loud and clear. Our purpose today is to see Jesus. Jesus the man, but Jesus the Christ. So we pick up where we've, we've, we've been walking through this story. Pastor John so beautifully laid out account after account of working through the Gospel of John. And we find Jesus, if you remember, week over week, it's hard to, times to, to sink back up. But we find Jesus is in the area of Judea, the capital, the capital city of, of, of the, the Jews' worship near Jerusalem. And he's ministering. He's beginning to minister. If you remember, there's a counter in, in, in chapter 3 where Jesus spoke with Nicodemus. Now, Dick, Nicodemus was a man of prominence. He was a, he was a leader. He was a highly moral individual. He had a reputation. And that reputation caused him to scurry to Christ at night with a longing. And that longing was to understand, is there a way to eternal life? And if there is, do you know, Jesus, do you know how to get there? And Jesus began to speak with him and to talk with him about the way that he could find eternal life. Moving on from that account, we, we saw that John the Baptist had said just previously that Jesus must increase and I must decrease, and that's what's occurring. So we find that, that, uh, that at, you know, as, as we go forward, that Jesus is starting to, to garner a lot of attention. People are being drawn in. So they're coming to him. They're coming to his, his disciples to be baptized. And so read with me in John chapter 4. You can turn in your Bibles. The, the words will be here, but follow along. It says this. Now Jesus, uh, when he learned that the Pharisees had heard that he, or Jesus, was making uh, and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, there's some interesting stuff that happens there that can pass by us so very quickly. I want you to kind of look. We're going to put a map up here, and, and just I want to dig slightly into this phrase, he had to pass. Now, it's a little bit of an eye chart, and I can see that, but if you see those two lines, the green line would represent the journey that, or the most likely journey that Christ would take. The red line is the, of the path of the average devout Jew. And what you'll find is it's true Geographically, Jesus had to pass from Judea, the area above it being Samaria, and above that, Galilee. So yes, you have to cross through it, but that is not the route that you would take. I don't know if you've ever lived anywhere where there's a thousand ways to get somewhere. I grew up in an area that's kind of one big inner city. It's the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's all one big inner city with no inner big city. And there's a thousand ways to get from one point to another. And if you were to Google your way to a destination, it would plot out the most expedient route. Problem being, in most cases where I live, the most expedient route between where I was going to hang out with friends and possibly a way home was to travel through an area called Rip Rap. I'm not making that up. That's really the name of the area. It sounds like what you'd expect. So the, the key feature of Rip Rap was Rip Rap Road. Again, real creative. Rip Rap Road, again, was a direct shot, easy to travel down, got you from point A to point B, especially if you were late on a curfew. But it, here's a little problem. Traveling Rip Rap Road might involve carjackings. 
It might involve a random shot through your car window or a mob attacks of various forms on you and your passengers. So you can imagine, you're driving somewhere, you're, you're going down, and the opportunity to take Rip Rap Road comes up, and you steer the car that direction. And your passengers begin at that moment to question your ability to make sound decisions. Now, no way is this an exact parallel of the Scripture today. But I'll tell you, his disciples, when he heard, we, I must go through Samaria, it would have raised the eyebrow. Again, I mentioned a devout Jew would never travel this way, let alone a rabbi travel this way. You didn't do it, for this was the land of the unclean. In fact, Jews, the, the, the route that we looked at before, that was, an extra, that was doubling the amount of time it took to travel. And we're talking by foot, arduous, hard travel. But you would do it simply for the purpose of not setting your foot in the land of Samaria. But Why? Why was it so bad to pass through Samaria? Why would you not want to do that if it's quicker? And in fact, there's many accounts where tradesmen, non-devout Jews would travel this way. But why would they have thought it was odd? Well, see, the, the Old Testament illuminates so much of a, for us you know, as, as we look at this relationship between the Jew and Samaritan. See, the Israelites, as God led them into the Promised Land, did something tragic. They threw off God as their king. And they set up earthly men to be their leaders. And leader after leader led them farther and farther into the ways of sin. And it came to a time, roughly about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, that these 12 unified tribes that God had established in the promised land divide themselves. The upper 10 tribes moving one direction into a northern kingdom, the last two tribes moving into a southern kingdom. And we see that the Samaritans would come out of those northern tribes we don't have time today to go back through the whole of the, the books of Kings and Chronicles and see the kings of the northern tribes. But listen to this. They led the people further and further away from the honor and worship of God. Into the point this northern kingdom would be devastated by the Assyrians. They would capture the people. They would kill the people. They would take some away as slaves. But they would leave a small remnant behind. Now this remnant of people do what most people would do in that, under captivity. They start mingling, intermarrying with the people around them. But not just mingling physically, they started to mix the worship of a true and holy God with grotesque rituals. They started to mix in sexual perversion and pagan idolatry. And sadly it says, they went so far in the worship of a false Canaanite God that they would take their own children and they would kill them and offer them as a sacrifice to a false god. That is the people of Samaria. Fast forward a few hundred years, the people of the southern kingdom are in captivity. They return to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans have an idea. And so in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, listen to this. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard of the return of the exiles that they were going to build the temple of the Lord. Now just simply what that means is they, these Samaritans, these, these northern tribe people heard these, these Jews are back to build a temple. And they say, they say hey, um, they approached the leader, Zerubbabel, the head of the fathers of the house, and they said, listen to this, let us build with you for we, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. 
And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day of Asherodon, king of Assyria, brought us here. He's saying, hey, look, guys, we, we worship the same God you do. We, we're, we're one. We're, we're brothers. We're sisters. We're one with you. But listen to the response of Zerubbabel and Yeshua. It says, the rest of the house and the heads of the fathers of Israel said this, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build for the Lord, the God of Israel, as the king of, of Persia, uh, Cyrus of Persia, commanded us. And what occurs after that, and you can read those verses on, is the, the, the people of Assyria, are, are the, the Samaritan people, are deeply wounded by that. And they set about to discourage the building of the temple, and they set about to disparage the people. It says they even bribed counselors to make sure it was hard work for them to build the temple. But wrapped in the words said between these people, it seems so easy. You Listen to this again. You have nothing, nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. See, this is a murderous hatred built year upon year upon year between these people. They said, you're no longer our brothers. You have no inheritance with us. You have no right to the worship of God with us. You have no right to the righteousness by God alone. You're not worthy. So after being rejected, the Samaritans have an idea. We're going to build our own temple. And they do. They set out to build their own temple, which is accomplished. Um, they set up, again, to mix this worship of a living God with pagan idolatry. And they begin to worship year after year after year. But this hatred only grows between uh, the people. And I tell you what, in your families, you may find that the deepest hatred that can exist are between the closest of physical relationships, familial relationships. Find a brother and sister who are at odds with one another and look at the damage they can do to one another. In my own family, I have, I have a story of a brother and sister who over a disagreement over the way things were handled with a settlement of, of an inheritance would not speak to each other for 50 years and even till the death of one of them. That's the kind of hatred we're talking about. This hatred would boil over in about 100 years before Christ, about 100, 120 years before Christ, a Jewish high priest would go on a campaign. He'd go into the land of, of the Samaritans, he'd take over the city of Shechem, and he would burn down the temple of the Samaritans. This is where Christ would walk into in this chapter. So first point I want us to look at this morning is that the sovereign grace of a loving uh, in love of a pursuing Savior, crosses all boundaries, barriers, and borders to divinely interrupt the course of death and sin in us. See, Jesus Christ would have set out on this journey, likely very early in the morning. They would have gathered their things together before the sun arose and set out on what would have been about a 20-mile journey. And for you marathon runners, you can get a better perspective than that. I think the only time I've gone 20, 20 miles an hour or 20, 20 miles total is in some sort of vehicle. So, but, but you get the idea. This is a hard journey. This is, not, this is not a paved track. It's not a four lane. This is a rough and rugged terrain. And so we come to Jesus sitting by a well. Why is he sitting by a well? He's tired. He's tired. He's walked 20 miles. You see, the first thing to see is the humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, fully man, like you and me. I hearken back to the words of Philippians chapter 2, which says, Jesus Christ himself thought it not right for him to grasp on to equality with God, or said it's something to be grasped, meaning he let it go. 
that becoming like a servant, he would take on our likeness. Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about Jesus? We've imagined Jesus a thousand ways. You've seen a thousand portraits and pictures of Christ. Have you ever thought of Christ sweating and tired, sitting out in the heat of the middle of the day by a well? i got to be honest. They didn't have that, that version of flannel graph for me growing up. They didn't have that Jesus. But this is the Jesus that John wrote about. So he sets out and he's, he's, he has this encounter. And I'll tell you, this is, this is nothing to be taken lightly. I remember stepping off a plane in, a, in an area very much like this in the world. And they single file lined us to, to walk across a taxiway next to the airplane. And I took about 10 steps and I noticed the guy in front of me, his shoes were melting to the pavement. This is the kind of heat we're talking about. This is middle of the day stuff, high noon in the Middle East. Jesus is tired. So let's continue reading in John chapter 4, verse 7 through 15. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away to the city to buy fruit. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me a woman, for a drink, or ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, said, said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where will you get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob? Because he came here and he he drank from this well himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again. The water that I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, I will not have to come here to draw water. So let's just pause for just a second to look at this woman. This woman is a Samaritan woman. We've talked about that. Obviously separated by from Jesus by so many reasons. She's separated culturally, she's separated by gender. We're going to find out she's separated morally by her uncleanliness. She's separated from Jesus Christ. But she's not just separated from Jesus, she's separated from her own people. You see, for us in our 21st century American mind, how many of you at any point this week, well maybe, went to a well to draw water for your family? Anybody do that? Nope, just turn on the tap. Just turn on the tap. But every day this woman would go to the well. But this is an odd encounter for her to do this this way. It's odd for her to come at noon. Because you didn't do this. The way you, you went with water. And don't think of a, you know, I don't, I don't know if you think like Jack and Jill carrying their little bucket and going to the well. This is a big, clay, heavy pot that she's carrying down. And if you've ever carried anything, go home, fill up a five-gallon jug, and go run around with some water for a little bit and see how heavy it is. This is arduous, heavy labor. And she picks the hottest part of the day to go there. Why? Because no one else would be there. This is a woman of scorn. This is a woman who didn't have a place among her own people, let alone a place in an audience with Jesus Christ. So she's shocked. She's shocked. But here's the deal about our Savior. Listen carefully. Jesus has come to interrupt the daily course of your life. This woman went to the well just doing what she normally did. I wonder how many times her feet had retraced these exact steps. 
There was nothing new to be seen or encountered. She's just doing what she's doing. And so it's true with you and I. We go through our daily routines, our daily sacrifices, our daily passions, whatever it is, not ever expecting to encounter Jesus Christ. But Jesus is here to interrupt the course of sin and the punishment of death in our life. So she's shocked. She's undone by what he's done. The fact that he would speak to her as a woman, this is hard to imagine. Again, if you haven't been maybe in the Middle East or, or in other places where this is, um, you know, I don't think many of our ladies have, have ever been shunned by, hopefully, by men who won't speak to him in our church that would just look by as, as if you're not worthy. Because the teaching of the day was we, can't, we don't even teach this to the women. We don't even give them this stuff. And a Samaritan woman above that, they said, from birth, you are forever unclean. There is no way to cleanse yourself as you're a Samaritan woman. It said that above the age of three, you could not consider her sexually pure. That is discouraging and damaging. And this is where this woman is shocked. Why are you talking to me? Why would you, a Jew, speak to me? Likely she knew she, he was a Jew by the way he was dressed, but more importantly, she would find out he was so much more. We go on to see that, that she has some questions here about this gift that he says. Now, living water, that's not a phrase that, that again, I, that I use very often, but it is a phrase that she would have been familiar with. It's not that that's some um, you know, spiritual turn just yet that this woman would have recognized. You see, living water simply meant water that comes out of like a, like a spring, I remember growing uh, or, or uh, being in the areas of Tennessee when I was younger, and you'd walk through a trail, and all of a sudden, out of the middle of a rock comes water shooting out. It's this unquenchable water. It's not from rain. It's not a waterfall. It's, it's a spring that's springing up. That's what living water means. It means that stream, that flowing water that's unquenchable, that has no source. It's not dependent on how much rain you've had this month. It's its, its own source. It's unstoppable. So this woman looks at the treasure of what Jesus said and says, this living water sounds like a pretty good idea. Because for one, it meets this need that I have. And what need is that? That need that I have to struggle every day to head down to this well, to, to, to have life. To have life, I've got to struggle. If you're offering me a way, I don't have to come here. This is great news. But she doesn't really believe it because she says, wait a minute. Do you think you're better than Jacob, our forefather? Now, again, to you and I, that seems like such a small thing to say, but to her, it was so deeply uh, meaningful. This, this well is where the patriarchs had met their wives. This was a meeting place. This is where Isaac has found his wife, Rebecca. And so, so this is a deeply meaningful place. And he's saying, do you think you're better than these guys? Do you think you can come here and tell me that you can offer me something that my forefathers cannot offer? What is this, Jesus? I don't, I don't understand. But she says this, if you can, I'm in. You see, in that moment, she did perceive that her deepest need was physical. It was here in this world. But Jesus is about to flip that on its, on, you know, flip it over. This morning we see that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can quicken our heart to the truth of what Jesus is saying. Just like Nicodemus. Nicodemus, when he's told about the way of eternal life and new birth, what does he say? i got to go find a man-sized womb to get back in. I'm, I know it's coarse, but that's what he said. And this woman says, hey, great, living water? Living water, I know what I'll do. 
you just bring that on and I'll just fill it every day. My jar, I can just go and fill it up every day. It meets my physical needs here. Maybe you have some association with the things of God and you think, man, that'd be a great, my, my family could really use that. Boy, it'd make my family a great thing if I could just get them in church. And we look for the things of Jesus, this precious Savior that we have to somehow figure out to make our lives better. But that's not where Jesus leaves us. Uh, you know, I, I compare this maybe um, for me. I'm just going to use me as an example. If Jesus would have come up and said, um, John, I got this water for you or, or, the, or this thing for you when you get home. It's going to be an ATM. And every time you go to it, you can withdraw as much cash as you possibly want. And I'd say, great, Jesus. All my worries are over. I can buy myself out of this. I can take care of my children. I can set myself up for the future. I can meet the needs that I have to with this funding that you've given me. So it is with this woman and what she sees. But the second point we'll look at today is that the sovereign grace and love bring both the Spirit and truth to us. And this, I mean this, that the Holy Spirit through the truth of the gospel breaks open our, art, our hearts, revealing our most desperate need for new life. Jesus is about to make this conversation very uncomfortable. You see, Jesus says to the woman this in, in uh, verse 16, the fourth chapter, he says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. That's uncomfortable. That, that, is, that, is, that, is a, that is a moment you've crossed a boundary in your conversation. You see, to this woman, she thought her need was water, was physical water and a physical way to keep, keep her life in check. But Jesus drew a bead on the deep wound of her life. Now, we're not given why she had five husbands. We don't know if, if she was widowed, but boy, you're the man to come after five you're a brave man. We don't know. We're not, we're not given that in, in history. But, but I will tell you this. In the context of the way it's written, any marriage over three would have been a sign of shame to her. And certainly, living with a man in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, which is the picture here, in the way that it provided for her living would have been equivalent to being a prostitute. That is the truth that he reveals to her. Now, when confronted with the idea of this, go, how do you think she felt when he said, go get your husband? How do you think she felt? Where did I go to do that? Now I'm going to be embarrassed. What, what do I say to this guy? And so she says, well, I don't, I don't have a husband. She tries to evade a little bit, try to get away from the truth, but Jesus won't leave it there. And he doesn't leave it there for you and I. I don't know... <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having the Holy Spirit show you your sin. I don't know if you know how uncomfortable, how off-putting that is for it to be revealed who you are. You, whether Jew or Gentile, people of this world, of any nation, all of us are in the predicament of this woman. All of us are outside. All of us are without the ability to connect back to God. But what do we do with our shame? Somewhere we've made a mistake within our, within our uh, religious circles of life 
that Christ is looking for good people to make better. And I know that's cliche, but we think it. We think at no point in my life can I be honest with anybody about who I really am. I want you to think if I was going to put on the screen, if I would just put up my actions for this week of who I really am, that's what Jesus reveals to us, first by the quickening of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel and the truth of who we are. That's what he's... Now here's the amazing truth. Christ just doesn't reveal who we are. He offers us the grace and love that is unfathomable. I love that word. It means if you were to try to drop a rope down and find the bottom of where his grace and mercy will go, you can't find the end. You can't find the end. It's unstoppable. The depth of depravity that God reveals to your heart, know this, there is no place, nowhere, nothing you can do that can outrun the grace of a loving God. Amen. When it came to the cross, Jesus applied the full measure of forgiveness for sin for you and I. Let's continue reading. John chapter 4, verses 19 through 26. It said, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on a mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, listen to this, I am, I who speak to you am he. Now at first glance, the conversation feels like this. Jesus comes up to her and says, go get your husband. She responds with, I don't have a husband. Jesus then goes back to say, you're correct. You are unfaithful. And adulterous, and you're living in sin with a man who is not your husband. So, what you've said is true. And she responds basically with, Well, I perceive you're a prophet, so uh, what church should I go to? So it seems odd, right? I mean, it does seem odd. Um, and to us, perhaps, we feel it's evasive. And while that is true, anytime, I, I want to say it again when God pinpoints who you are in the inside of your heart, it is uncomfortable. It is unsettling. And more than that, it is shattering to everything that you feel you can build on your own self-righteousness. Christ came to do away with that. But more than that, we see something else in, in, the, in the way she responds. And that's she talks about worship. So the third thing I want to look at today is that when sovereign grace and love come to us, it produces genuine worship. You know, our most natural response to the truth of the gospel is an unquenchable worship that rushes out of us like living water. Again, it's this idea of springing out of you, springing out of you. 
she, she's got a problem. He's just revealed she's sinful. She's, he's just revealed she's separated from God. We've talked about the history that this woman has no place. So she says, if I wanted to follow you, a Jewish prophet, which, by the way, I just want to pause here just a second. The language for a prophet is most likely she was referring to the messianic prophet that the Samaritans would have, would have worshipped. So this is really saying the prophet in terms of, are you this one that we've heard so much about? But he goes on to kind of, kind of say that, that um, you know, she, she, she can't go to the temple. Remember, they couldn't rebuild it. They didn't have a place. And Christ reveals to her something that we all need to hear. The worship of God is not bound up in buildings. It's not here on this earth. It is inside of you and I. Those who have run headlong with our shame to a loving Savior, and in so doing found a forgiveness by His blood alone that sets within us the desire to worship Him as our Lord and Savior. And she's simply saying, how can I do this? How can I worship? I can't go to that temple. I know that you think my temple is wrong. Where do I go? Jesus Christ says, within you, the true worshipers that, that are here now, he says, I'm calling them here now, are those that will worship me in spirit and truth. You see, this is amazing to me. That of all, think of the people that Jesus has interacted with. He's interacted with his family growing up. We see him at the wedding feast. We see him talking to Nicodemus. We see him calling the disciples. We see him talking to John the Baptist. We see all of these encounters. But you know what's not written there? Is one of the seven key I am statements of the book of John. And this is where Jesus clearly, in no uncertain terms, tells someone or a group of people, I am the Christ. And who did he pick? A Samaritan woman. Somebody separated from him by every imaginable boundary and barrier. And to know that you and I today have a precious Savior, a Christ the only one who can pay for us, who for each one of us, his pursuit. She wasn't looking. She wasn't longing. She was meeting her physical and emotional and every need she had in life with the things of this earth. So I wonder, I wonder about us today. How many wells are we trying to go to? What well would you walk to to try to fill the need that only a divine Savior for you can fill? Where would you go? Where is it each day takes your steps? Is it to self-ambition? Is it to the way I raise my children, how successful they become? What do we realize that our desperate need today is the wellspring of living water that by Christ alone can well up inside of you. By Him alone. You see, in that moment, she didn't realize the cost that this well would... Because our, our sin comes at a great cost. We read of our precious Savior would thirst again. He would thirst as He hung on a cross for you and me. 
And as his body was tore open, both blood and what? Water flowed out of our Christ. She had no concept of all that would be. But what she knew is there was some man who's revealed to me who I am. And today my deepest prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit of a living God would inside of your heart show you who you are. And in so doing, not leave you where you find yourself, but realize that there is one whose spring of living life is yours by his blood alone. Lastly, we'll kind of close as we wrap up with, uh, uh, and I love this, (laughs) I don't know why it takes 12 individuals to go get lunch for one Messiah, but it did. Um, I'm just kidding. It's it's the sovereign will of God to, to orchestrate things this way. But we read in verse 27, it says, and the disciples came back, and I love this, look at the word, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? And after that, so it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see the man who told me everything that I did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Now what we don't have time to see is is the great result of this. We'll see this in the coming weeks of what this woman's testimony would become. But I will tell you here, she left a changed woman with new life. The disciples come and they're, this Jesus didn't look like what they expected. And I tell you, I wish our church sometimes could confront Jesus as he really is. That we would see him as clearly as painted in scripture. We see him as we study God's word and the Holy Spirit reveals to our heart because I guarantee you, he's not like we think. This is not a flannel graph Jesus. This is Jesus Christ, who the apostle John said, I want you to see him and in so seeing and find eternal life. She left her pot, and I think that's interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting note that John would write it down. I mean, there's a thousand things he could have written. He said she left her pot. Why? Well, if you're hurrying to do something, you don't strap on extra labor upon you. She left with that the weight of what she had carried with her. She left with it the errands and the efforts of her daily routine. She, she left unhindered. I got to go. I got to run. I got to tell. I've got to worship this one who is the Messiah. She left it and walked away. I want to close with this. I apologize for not having the verses up there, but it's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. It says this, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What that says to us this morning is, that wellspring of life grows up in the hearts of us a pursuing Savior who reveals to us by the Spirit of truth, the Spirit and truth, who we are, that we may become worshipers of Him. Let's pray.